Good morning. In today's headlines, is the Biden administration changing course on the border wall, Trump-era construction, direct deportations of Venezuelans, and more? A federal court gives the go-ahead to a new map that redraws Alabama congressional districts, and it could impact the balance of power in the U.S. House. Updates on former President Trump's legal battles. The 2024 presidential candidate looking to cut down the charges against him with a motion to dismiss. We have the latest. The Epic Times and Moms for America draw attention to the complex issues related to transgenderism while screening a docudrama on the subject. The long-running feud between the SEC and Elon Musk continues. The agency is suing the billionaire to have him testify in their Twitter takeover probe. And we have crowned our very first Miss NTD. We sat down together to hear about her experience. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Friday, October 6th. Gender transformation, that docudrama. You know, I found it interesting what Kimberly Fletcher, the Moms for America founder, said. She said it's a billion-dollar business set up to mutilate children. That is, that is interesting, and I think um, I'm looking forward to hear more details about this. But first, we have other top news to get to, which is President Biden is changing course on the border wall. He previously said there wouldn't be a single foot build under his watch. Now construction on the Trump-era project is set to soon begin. Entity's Jason Perry has the latest. In the midst of a major surge of illegal immigrants, the Biden administration says it's planning to resume construction on the Trump-era border wall. The plans are to build the wall in Starr County in South Texas, a hotspot for illegal immigration. This decision to resume construction comes as the Border Patrol encountered more than 227,000 people crossing the southwest border in just the month of September. In a Thursday notice on the Federal Register, Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas said there's an immediate need to construct physical barriers to prevent unlawful entries into the United States. However, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre gave a different reason for resuming construction on the border wall. She noted that there are still funds from the Trump administration that are to be used specifically for a border barrier, and the deadline to use them is approaching. Uh, this is a law that we are complying with. Uh, we, have, we have asked Congress multiple times to reappropriate this. Uh, this is not the way that we believe is going to be effective here. And when President Biden on Thursday was asked if walls work, he said no. Former President Trump said this on Truth Social. Will Joe Biden apologize to me and America for taking so long to get moving and allowing our country to be flooded with 15 million illegal immigrants from places unknown? I await his apology. I spoke with Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Biden doesn't plan on stopping his catch and release policies at the southwest border. So at least erecting barriers gives the illusion that the president is doing something. Arthur explained that there are several things in play here. And I think the political pressure coming from uh, northern Democratic officials is a whole lot uh, stronger in the administration's decision in this regard than any demands being made by agents on the southwest border. And he added this about the area where the border wall is set to be built in South Texas. So this is a heavily trafficked area. It's also a known drug trafficking area. The drugs hopefully are 
uh, at least part of the consideration uh, for why the Biden administration is doing this. Uh, you know, we've seen two consecutive years of new highs for fentanyl overdose deaths and deaths on other uh, synthetic opioids. Uh, so, and it's important to remember that back in 2007, then Senator Joe Biden talked about how important fencing was to stop the flow of drugs into the United States. Now, without a set start date for construction, many are wondering when it will begin and how much of the border wall will be built. Jason Perry, NTD News. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas are in Mexico City for a two-day trip. The trip is focused on fentanyl and arms trafficking and the increasing number of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. And Secretary Mayorkas responded to media reports of new border wall construction. There is no new administration policy with respect to the border wall. From day one, this administration has made clear that a border wall is not the answer. The Biden administration will resume deportation flights to Venezuela. It's the latest move to stem the flow of illegal immigrants at the southern border. Here are the details. The Biden administration announced Thursday it will resume deporting Venezuelan illegal immigrants who made up the largest single group encountered at the U.S.-Mexico border last month. This came as Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Attorney General Merrick Garland met with their counterparts in Mexico City. We have now successfully negotiated an agreement with the country of Venezuela to repatriate those Venezuelan nationals who have arrived subsequent to July 31st and do not have a basis to remain in the United States. We are a nation of immigrants and we are a nation of laws. The announcement came not long after the administration extended temporary protected status for Venezuelans who arrived in the U.S. before July 31st of this year. The officials explained that deportation is one of the strict consequences the Biden administration is pairing with the expansion of legal pathways. They noted the Biden administration remains committed to providing protection for those who qualify for asylum. The scale of this challenge demands that we redouble our efforts, that we do more to improve and modernize border security, that we do more to increase legal migration pathways and protections, more to address root causes, and more to deter irregular migration humanely. Biden officials didn't discuss details about how frequently deportation flights would be going to Venezuela or describe how Venezuela agreed to accept back their citizens. The meeting with Mexican officials covered shared security issues, among them human trafficking, arms trafficking, drug trafficking, and illegal immigration. A federal court has given the green light to a new map of congressional districts in Alabama just in time for the 2024 congressional elections. This decision is expected to benefit the Democratic Party in a state that traditionally leans heavily Republican. Let's bring in Hans von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, for some analysis on how this could affect the balance of power in the House. Hans, good morning. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Kevin. It's good to see you again. How will the court's map that boosts black populations in the 2nd Congressional District in Alabama affect the next House election cycle, considering that Republicans only have a slim majority right now? Well, as you know, their slim majority is only nine votes, and the potential here is for uh, a Democrat to be elected in Alabama. What the court has done is said that uh, Alabama, which for the last 30 years, out of its seven congressional districts, it has had one of them that's considered a majority-minority district. In other words, a district in which uh, black voters 
are a majority of the voters, and therefore they've been able to elect a Democrat. But what the court did is they came in and said, well, that's not enough. You have to have two uh, uh, congressional districts that are uh, available to black voters to elect their candidate of choice. So they come up with a map that has a second district in which the black voting age population is almost 49%. So it's highly likely that a Democrat will be elected. I, I think the court is wrong from the standpoint of the Voting Rights Act. Um, the cartographers who drew up this plan made race the predominant factor in how they drew these boundaries, and that's strictly prohibited by the Voting Rights Act. Right, and the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a lower court's decision ordering Alabama to redraw right. its congressional map, but the Republicans ignored the mandate, and now the Alabama Secretary of State, Wes Allen, he's, he's a Republican, he said the state would comply and would be actually following this map. So what do you think is going to happen here? Well, this map is going to go in place, and the elections are probably uh, going to be conducted under it, but I don't think Alabama is going to give up trying to appeal this decision, and I suspect they're going to try to go back to the court. Keep in mind that that prior Supreme Court decision was a 5-4 decision in which uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, joined with the liberals um, along with Justice Kavanaugh. I think they made a major error, and I'm hoping that they actually will reconsider what they've done and realize that they, they made a mistake, because I think the judges like I said, they actually violated Supreme Court precedent in making race the predominant factor in drawing up these boundary lines. The Supreme Court has previously said you can't do that. And the only evidence they had to justify two districts is the proportion of the black population and the general population. The black population is about 27 percent. Uh, so supposedly they're entitled to two um, congressional seats. But again, the Voting Rights Act said you can't use proportional representation as a justification for uh, drawing up these kind of congressional districts. So all around, I think the lower court has violated the law. So former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, he's one of the ones that actually brought the challenge against Alabama's right. map originally. And he said in a statement that defying federal court orders was a tie to an odious past and it will not be tolerated. What's your reaction to this? Look, Eric Holder, I actually wrote a book about him and his mismanagement of the Justice Department. He was one of the most political attorney generals that has ever uh, been in charge of that office. And he's just wrong. What Alabama tried to do was draw up congressional districts without using race and adhering to traditional redistricting principles. It's the court here that is uh, acting, I think, in an odious manner and saying, no, no, no. You need to use race when you're drawing up boundary lines. So Eric Holder, as usual, is just totally wrong. Well, it's always great hearing your analysis. Hans von Spakovsky at the Heritage Foundation, thank you. Thanks for having me. And now for an update on former President Trump's ongoing legal battles. The 2024 presidential candidate says that the multiple cases against him are meant to interfere with his campaign and is looking to cut down the list of charges against him. Trump's lawyers yesterday asking a judge to dismiss the January 6th case against him, arguing presidential immunity. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest. Trump's defense lawyers stated in their motion Thursday that it was breaking 234 years of precedent to charge the former president for acts that lay at the heart of his official responsibilities as president. 
The defense motion states that the prosecution cannot argue that efforts to ensure and advocate for election integrity are outside the scope of presidential duties. Prosecutors argued in the indictment that Trump's actions went beyond what's legally permissible, leading up to the January 6th breach at the Capitol. Special counsel Jack Smith's team is expected to vigorously contest the motion. It's not clear when U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin might rule. Arguments over the motion to dismiss, including an expected appeal, if denied, could delay the case. Trump's lawyers hinted they would fight the issue all the way to the Supreme Court over what they described as an unsettled question. The defense motion states that although the Supreme Court has ruled presidents immune from civil liability for actions related to official duties, no court has addressed if they are shielded from criminal prosecution. Defense attorneys also argue Trump's 2021 impeachment trial acquittal bars his prosecution, saying the Constitution suggests presidents can only be criminally charged if impeached and convicted by the Senate. The case is currently scheduled for March next year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Trump is also asking a New York judge to dismiss the hush money case over prosecutors waiting too long to bring charges. A court filing yesterday said Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg waited over six years after public reporting on issues on the indictment and close to five years after launching a grand jury investigation. Trump has dropped his $500 million lawsuit against his former lawyer Michael Cohen, a key witness in the hush money case. A Trump spokesperson says that it's a temporary pause and that it would be refiled at a later date. A statement by the spokesperson cited Trump's busy schedule as the reason due to presidential campaign trail stops and multiple indictments in courts across the country. Cohen celebrated the decision, saying the suit was nothing more than an intimidation tactic and that he and his legal team look forward to holding Trump accountable. And in the New York civil fraud case, Trump's legal team is looking to halt the trial that's pending appeal of Judge Engeron's partial summary judgment. The defense team gave notice in court yesterday and said they plan to file the request this morning. Prosecutors objected, saying they need more than 24 hours notice. The judge also said it wasn't enough time and that the appeals court might deny the request. And Gorin ruled Trump liable for fraud in a partial summary judgment last week. If upheld on appeal, the case could cost Trump control over some of his properties, like Trump Tower. Judge Angeron ordered an outline of the plan to dissolve Trump's companies and will decide other penalties next. New York Attorney General Letitia James is also seeking $250 million in damages and a ban on Trump doing business in New York. And could the historical ousting of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy change the way Congress operates? Some want a consequential rules change, and former President Trump gives his endorsement. A potential face-to-face -face meeting between President Biden and China's Xi Jinping. A report says the talks could happen next month in the U.S. Stay tuned for more on that when we come back. Welcome back. Now back to D.C. as the House searches for its next speaker. Some are insisting on a change in the rule that any member of Congress can file a motion to vacate. Some House members want to revert to the old order of business to avoid another ouster. NTD's Melina Weiskopf tells us more. 
So remember that motion to vacate rule was only reinstated during this Congress. Now some want to revert and get rid of that motion to vacate rule, saying that they don't want to see the ousting happen over and over again. Now there are some Republicans who do want to keep this in place, arguing that the motion to vacate is the only way they can hold the speaker accountable. But now there's a growing list of moderate Republicans who want to get rid of this rule. Some even saying that they're not willing to support any candidate for speaker unless that rule is changed. While others do want to see change, they're not entirely sure over specifically what they want that change to be. Motion to vacate is a tool to hold a speaker accountable, uh, but we don't want to continue going forward in a situation where they can just anyone can motion to vacate at any time uh, for any reason. And Congressman Matt Gates did have some interesting comments to say on this front, writing on X that he'd basically give all of his Republican colleagues whatever they want on the motion to vacate in exchange for some proposals made by a Democrat Congressman, Ro Khanna. These are policies such as banning stock trading and other issues. Here's what Congressman Ro Khanna told me about all this. I believe that we need to ban lobbyists and PAC money we need to ban members from trading stock. We need to ban members from becoming lobbyists. And I was encouraged that Representative Gates agrees with that. And these are the reforms that should be part of the conversation, whoever the new speaker is. As for that big question of who will become the next speaker, of course, we know those big names who are in the race, Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise. Now we're hearing some news of former President Trump. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene told me that she spoke with the former president one on one in a phone conversation, and he said he was open to it. But ultimately, we'll get more insight into this next week when the Republicans meet for their candidate forum on Tuesday and ultimately that vote on Wednesday. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Former President Trump is throwing his support behind a candidate for House Speaker. He's backing Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio, a member of the Freedom Caucus and chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. It comes after Trump said he would consider serving as Speaker for a short time after receiving endorsements from several House Republicans. Meanwhile, the White House calls for more support for Ukraine amid a deadly Russian airstrike. But the future of Ukraine aid has become more uncertain as the House seeks a new speaker. Entity's Iris Howe has more from the White House. The White House says the U.S. has to continue supporting Ukraine. That says a Russian missile strike killed at least 51 people in eastern Ukraine on Thursday. Ukrainian officials say it's one of the deadliest attacks against civilians since the war began. We have to be, continue to support the people of Ukraine because this is the horrifying nature that they live in every day. The White House said earlier this week that it was soon announced another aid package for Ukraine. But over in Congress, GOP lawmakers are growing increasingly skeptical about sending more taxpayer money. And Congressman Jim Jordan, one of the leading candidates now vying for the speaker's gavel, said on Thursday that he needed answers on two fundamental questions. What is the goal? What is the objective? Second, how is the money being spent? How, how can we account for that? The, I think the American people are entitled to know the answer to do, those two questions before we continue to send their hard-earned money to uh, protect Ukraine's border when we have what's happening on our border. And Congressman Jordan has signaled that if elected as Speaker, he would not support another aid package for Ukraine. And Congress has already left out any additional funding for Ukraine in this latest short-term spending bill. But President Biden says he will soon give a major speech to stress the need to support Ukraine. Reporting from the White House, Adris Howe, NTD News. 
An in-person meeting between President Biden and China's Xi Jinping may be on the horizon. According to the Washington Post, the White House is already making plans for the face-to-face -face talks as the two countries seek to smooth tensions. The potential meeting would take place at the APEC summit in San Francisco next month, but so far China hasn't confirmed whether she will attend. If the talks do happen, it would be the second in-person meeting between the two leaders. The last they last met in Bali last November at a G20 summit. Ties between the world's two largest economies have been strained in recent years due to issues like Taiwan, allegations of spying, and human rights, vi rights violations, among other issues. The Biden administration has been working to repair ties with China. Top U.S. officials like Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo have visited Beijing in recent months. Coming up, a former associate of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has testified in court. He is one of three top executives poised to testify in the trial. Find out what he had to say. And the victimizing of children was in the spotlight at a screening of the epic original docudrama Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities. We'll have that story and more after the break. Good to have you back with us. New York City is also taking stronger action to tackle the illegal immigration crisis. The city is now trying to suspend its right to shelter law. This comes as the mayor is touring Latin America, warning people about current conditions in New York. NTD's Arian Pastar has the details. New York City is trying to suspend its right to shelter law. City attorneys filed this letter with the New York Supreme Court this week saying the law's requirements are ill-suited to present circumstances and restrain the city at a time when flexibility to deal with the emergency is paramount. They're asking a justice to suspend portions of the law if two conditions are met. The mayor has declared a state of emergency and the number of single adults seeking shelter is at least 50% greater than before the state of emergency. Both conditions are currently being met. New York City's right to shelter law basically obligates the city to provide a bed to anyone who asks for one. The law was put in place 40 years ago, intended to help the homeless population. While New York City Mayor Eric Adams was campaigning to become mayor, he praised the law and how it can help immigrants. Now that's changed, and Adams isn't the only Democrat turning on the law. Last month, New York Governor Kathy Hochul was on CNN saying that the law is being abused. Never was it envisioned that this would be an unlimited universal right or obligation on the city to have to house literally the entire world. New York's motion to change the law comes as Adams is touring Latin America starting Wednesday. Just, just landed in uh, Mexico City. The mayor's goal is to inform people about the realities they'll face if they go to New York City, such as that housing and work are not guaranteed for everyone. On Thursday, Adams attended an event in Mexico City warning that a large influx of adult male immigrants could have a potential impact on crime. I don't think it's going to impact shoplifting, a mass people that can be involved in, you know, a, a stealing or doing something that's antisocial behavior. This comes as up to 800 immigrants a day have been arriving in New York City. That's double the usual number. Adams is scheduled to travel to the capital cities of Ecuador and Colombia before visiting the dangerous Darien Gap that leads through the jungle and into Central America. Arian Pastar, NTD News. 
A co-founder of FTX says he and Sam Bankman-Fried committed financial crimes and lied to the public before the collapse of the cryptocurrency trading platform last year. Entity's Cost Hemenes has more on Bankman-Fried's trial. Gary Wang said he committed wire securities and commodities fraud as the chief technical officer at FTX. Both also shared ownership in Alameda Research, a cryptocurrency hedge fund that he and Bankman-Fried started in 2017. Wang added that Bankman-Fried told him to give the hedge fund special trading privileges on FTX. Wang said the two met over a decade ago at a high school summer camp before becoming business partners. According to Wang's testimony, Alameda Research was eventually used to withdraw $8 billion in FTX funds illegally under Bankman-Fried's direction. Wang's statements come as prosecutors are trying to prove that Bankman-Fried stole billions of dollars from investors and customers to enrich himself and made over $100 million in political contributions aimed at influencing cryptocurrency regulation. Bankman-Fried has been jailed since August and has pleaded not guilty. Prior to the trial, prosecutors promised to use testimony from Bankman-Fried's trusted inner circle against him. His defense lawyers argued he had no criminal intent and only took actions to try to save his businesses after the cryptocurrency market collapsed. According to Wang, Alameda Research was geared up to manipulate financial balances and its computer code engineered to provide a credit of $65 billion, again under Bankman-Fried's direction. Wang is the first of a trio of former top executives slated to testify against Bankman-Fried after they pleaded guilty to fraud charges in cooperation deals that could reduce their sentences. The others are Caroline Ellison, a former chief executive at Alameda Research and a former girlfriend of Bankman-Fried, as well as Nishat Singh, former engineering director at FTX. If convicted, Bankman-Fried could face a long prison term. Cost MNS, NTD News. All right, let's switch it up. We're going to bring you some of the latest headlines. An armed man showed up at the Wisconsin Capitol asking to see Governor Tony Evers on Wednesday. He was shirtless and accompanied by his dog, allegedly carrying a loaded handgun in a holster. He was arrested and let out on bail. That evening, the same man returned with a loaded assault rifle. It was hours after closing time at the Capitol. He was then arrested again. The governor wasn't in the building either time the suspect showed up. A New Orleans grand jury declined to recommend charges in the Hard Rock Hotel collapse in 2019. The New Orleans Hotel was under construction when it collapsed, killing three people and injuring dozens. According to a statement from the DA, the jurors deliberated and decided there wasn't enough evidence for criminal charges. The George W. Bush Presidential Center in Dallas will reopen this morning after an evacuation yesterday. The center was evacuated after National Archives and record staff received a suspicious email. Authorities were alerted and decided to close down as a precaution. Former President and Mrs. Bush were not there at the time of the incident. Dick Butkus, NFL Hall of Fame linebacker and one of the most feared men to ever play the game, is dead at age 80. The Chicago Bears announced he died peacefully in his sleep overnight. He played nine seasons for the Bears in the 60s and 70s. Butkus was also an actor and an outspoken critic of performance-enhancing drugs. 
The Epoch Times and Moms for America teamed up for a virtual screening of the docudrama Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the event held at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., which examined the complex issues surrounding gender confusion and transgenderism. Do you think you'd be happier as a boy? Gender Transformation, The Untold Realities, tells the story of those who started to change their gender. It examines the financial interests behind the transgender movement and the political and societal mechanisms in play. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene addressed those in attendance. This is a big night and a very important movie about gender confusion. And I'm so thankful to the people that created this movie to spread awareness of this unbelievable evil that has come all across America and it's targeting our children. Moms for America founder and President Kimberly Fletcher was a panelist at the event. We stand for faith, family, patriotism. We are a national movement of moms and we are on a mission to reclaim our culture for truth, family, freedom, and the Constitution. We have over 500,000 moms across the country. Fletcher says if somebody tells you every day you might not be who you are, you may start to think it's true. It is a major, major market, a billion dollar industry to transition kids. They award these different entities, medical facilities, um, insurance companies, they incentivize them to do the gender transformations. Hospitals are seeing this as a long-term residual income. When you can damage these children at young ages, they're constantly going to have to come back for treatment and care. And if they do want to detransition, then they have to pay for that too. Mark Trammell from the Center for American Liberty says telling detransitioner stories is important. The legal firm represents three of them, Chloe Cole, Layla Jane, and Luca Hine. I really think that their stories are saving lives. When, when other young girls hear how, how Luca and Chloe and Layla have been victimized, have been targeted, um, I think it makes them you know, realize that there is a path to fighting back. Former White House senior strategic advisor Mercedes Schlapp says the issue of gender ideology has had a toxic effect on American culture. We're not gonna stay quiet. We're gonna make sure that our voices are heard. This is one of the most important issues right now. If we lose our children, if we become a genderless society, if we continue to create cre confusion here in America, it will be the fall of this great country. Mental health counselor January Littlejohn says most other countries recommend psychotherapy as the risks of socially and medically transitioning children far outweigh the benefits. We're talking about radical experimental medical interventions that ultimately sterilize children, and it's all based on self-ID. There is no test to determine which child will persist in their trans identity and which will desist. George Getz says what he called the radical trans surgery phenomenon is a real threat to society and to parents. It was a very moving documentary which shows a real-life case of a beautiful young girl, 14 years old or so, who was being transitioned in school and by her friends behind her mother's back. University student Justin Mann says everyone needs to see a documentary like Gender Transformation. For me, a student, uh, I wish I could go back to my high school years and kind of shout at these people and be like, what are you, go what are you letting happen in your school districts and why are you continually uh, letting this like, contagion grow? For more on the Epoch original docudrama, visit gendertransformation.com. 
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Right. Fascinating report. Yeah, like you said before, a billion dollar industry. That's well, and with such commercial um, interest, right? It should really be. Um, it, it's easy to have. It happens that these vulnerable will be exploited, and I mean, the big pharma and the medical. Um, industry it has a history of that, right? So, Yeah, and this report does a great job of explaining the current situation and what's ahead, but according to Quadrant Online, when we look back into history, the seeds of transgenderism were actually planted by a Marxist-inspired writer, Wilhelm Reich, when he published his book, Sexuality and the Culture War, which attacked the family and the Western civilization's opposition to pedophilia. Right. And then, of course, there is gender dysphoria, which I really feel for them as well because, but in the end, just I think it's important to protect those that are still vulnerable to all these messagings, like the little, little children. So yeah, I think there is a lot to balance here. Yes, we're going to break now. Google's landmark antitrust trial is underway. The judge unsealed confidential testimony of two key witnesses. Our business host, Don Ma, has the details. And the SEC sues Elon Musk to compel testimony in their Twitter probe, escalating a long-running feud. That story and more after the break. Welcome back. Elon Musk is being sued by the Securities and Exchange Commission in an attempt to have him testify about his purchase of Twitter. Court filings yesterday say the SEC subpoenaed the billionaire to appear in court last month, but that he didn't show up. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the SEC probe. The SEC investigation escalates a long-running feud between the agency and the world's richest man. It's focused on if Musk broke federal securities laws in 2022 when he bought stock in Twitter, now renamed X. The SEC says Musk missed the deadline to publicly disclose buying the stock. Thursday's filing showed the agency subpoenaed Musk this year in May to provide testimony in San Francisco. Though Musk initially agreed to the deposition, he raised objections two days before and did not appear. The SEC says Musk accused the agency of trying to harass him and that he told them his counsel needed time to review potentially relevant material from a biography published last month. Musk also refused SEC proposals to conduct the deposition in Texas in October or November. According to the filing, Musk has given the SEC documents for their probe and provided testimony via video conference in July last year. Musk's attorney said the SEC has already taken Musk's testimony multiple times in the, quote, misguided investigation and that enough is enough. The SEC stated it needed additional testimony for information not already in its possession, relevant to what it called its legitimate and lawful investigation. Musk first disclosed he had built a large minority stake in Twitter in April 2022. The entrepreneur was late with that filing, first indicating he planned to be a passive stakeholder, meaning he did not plan to take over the company or influence management decisions. Later that month, he announced plans to buy Twitter, but then attempted to back out of the deal, alleging Twitter was not disclosing the truth about the extent of bot activity on its platform. Faced with pressure from a trial to complete the deal, Musk closed his acquisition of Twitter in October last year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now turning to the landmark antitrust case against Google, previously confidential court transcripts were unsealed by the judge presiding over the lawsuit. Here with us live is Entity Business host Don Ma. Don, good to have you this morning. Now this is interesting. Tell us what the unsealed documents say. Yeah, so Evelyn, it appears that Apple 
may have turned down multiple opportunities where the company could have actually undermined Google's search engine dominance. Now, let me explain what that means. Uh, but first, let's keep in mind that uh, one of the core accusations of the lawsuit is that Google Search unfairly gained dominance in the search engine space, uh, which includes as well paying Apple $10 billion to keep Google as the default search engine. Okay, so now with that in mind, the unsealed transcripts show witnesses saying that Apple turned down chances to seriously collaborate uh, with Microsoft's Bing search, as well as uh, turning down chances to make the DuckDuckGo search engine a default option. Now, if Apple didn't turn them down, both opportunities would have had either significantly propelled that particular search engine or would have undermined Google's search. Mm, so why did Apple turn down those opportunities? Well, it seems like one factor was that uh, Apple had a contract with Google, as I mentioned, a $10 billion earlier. And another factor, is, it seems that, is Apple was just trying to act in the best interest of itself. Uh, because according to the transcripts, it seems like Apple had found uh, uh, through testing that Bing was inferior to Google in many respects and that replacing Bing as uh, the de default search engine would not best serve Apple's customers. And the same reason goes for uh, why Apple turned down DuckDuckGo as a default search engine. Uh, so yeah, that's what the witnesses are saying. Mm, interesting. I, and I think you have two more points for us this morning. What else do you have? Yeah, so uh, first is homes in 75% of U.S. counties are now unaffordable for the average American. This is according to a recent report by real estate provider Adam. Uh, the, the cause is inflation, no surprise there, high interest rates and the increasing cost of housing. Uh, the average American uh, being referred to in the report earns about $71,000 per year. Right now, the typical percent of average wages required to major, for uh, major home ownership expenses is a whopping 35%. Also, in the third quarter, the typical monthly cost of mortgage payments, home, homeowner insurance, uh, mortgage insurance, and property taxes rose above $2,000 for the first time in U.S. history. So other than that, uh, U.S. gas prices uh, may soon tumble to $3 a gallon. This is due to decreased demand and economic fears by consumers. Uh, the possible price drop uh, may also help stem, stem rising inflation, but it may also point to weakness in the American economy. The government said the average uh, four-week for gasoline demand was at its lowest in 26 years. Gasoline reserves are also up by over 6 million barrels, surpassing analyst expectations. Uh, so yeah, that's the two updates from me this morning, Evelyn. Got it. Well, at least consumers will welcome the drop in gas prices then, I guess. Thank you, Don, host of NTD Business. Yeah, thank you as always. And now we are heading to the UK to Malcolm Hudson for some short headlines around the world. Good morning from the UK, Evelyn and Kevin. An Iranian rights group says security forces arrested the mother of the teen girl allegedly brutally beaten for not wearing mandatory women's headgear. The mother was allegedly arrested near the hospital where her daughter lay in a coma. Iran officials deny the mother's arrest and the daughter's injuries. The girl's arrest sparked a wave of brutal protest and brutal crackdowns by Iranian morality police. 
Iranian foreign ministry criticized comments made by the U.S. regarding women's rights in Iran and the teen's case, saying they were interventionist and biased remarks that expressed insincere concern over Iranian women and girls. Canadian universities are trying to reassure Indian students of their safety in the wake of the diplomatic crisis between India and Canada. Indian students represent the largest number of foreign students in Canada. But many Indian students are worried about their safety and may be postponing study in Canada or choosing online study. A new semester is set to begin and Canada is offering Indian students incentives such as top college courses costing up to 40,000 Canadian dollars a year. There is also a concern about how the Indian government may handle student visas to Canada. A cross-party coalition of British lawmakers wants a pause on facial recognition surveillance. The move comes after Policing Minister Chris Philp suggested a new database of British passports could be used to catch criminals through biometric surveillance. Amnesty International has long denounced facial recognition. Silky Carlo, director of the Big Brother Watch Group, said facial recognition could turn the population into walking ID cards in a constant police lineup. The EU hopes to finalise a ban on facial recognition later this year. At least 12 were killed and 49 injured after Syrian regime forces launched systematic attacks on civilians in northwestern Syria. This according to the civil defence group White Helmets. Heavy artillery and rocket launchers were used against targets like markets, schools and public facilities. According to the group's report, humanitarian workers were targeted in these attacks. They also said 12 children and 11 women were among the wounded. That's all from me. Back to you both and have a good weekend. Stay with us. Discover the true meaning of inner beauty as we sit down with the newly crowned Miss NTD to hear her take on traditional values. Don't miss it. Welcome back. We have crowned our very first Miss NTD. That's exactly right. And I had the chance to get together with her and have a quick chat. She says she never was actually interested in pageants until this one. Have a listen. I'm here with our very first Miss NTD, Cynthia Sun. Welcome. Thank you, Evelyn. How does it feel? I'm still baffled right <laughs> now. It's surreal. Every single time I hear like, Hello, Miss NTD, should we bow to you? I still feel like it's not me. I feel like it's like an otherworldly experience. It really doesn't feel real, because I, I didn't expect to win at all. Well, I think you did so well. And everybody, it was such, it was, it was quite the competition because everybody was so good. And so what, I'm interested, what made you apply for this pageant in particular? Mm -hmm. Why not any other, why NTD? I actually wasn't interested in beauty pageants before this one because it seemed very superficial to me and everyone always asked me, you know, do you want to model, do you want to, because we have Miss Chinatown in Houston and they were always like, oh, you should apply to go to Miss Chinatown, but it really felt like they were judging it based on like physical appearance or based off of like your resume and it just didn't feel like it was who I truly was or what was wholly me. So what was it about this process that felt different to you? Yeah, actually they really emphasize the question and answer portion 
and they didn't have a bikini section. So they did more athletic wear and they did evening gown and you're expected to walk naturally in like a very charismatic and you know exuberate confidence and I think that part itself was very respectful. Full, and also the Q&A section was most where most of the points actually came from. So they would ask you, you know, what do you think the qualities of a good role model are? What do you think traditional Chinese women and what do you think Miss NTD should do? How should she inspire other women to also pursue their heritage and reconnect with their, you know, roots? And I felt like those question and answer sections really made me reflect a lot and dig deep to find where my roots are, what is the meaning of my life, what do I want to do in this life to make it meaningful, and how can I inspire other ladies? So what did you find? What did you find? Yeah, a lot. Oh my gosh, we, we could be here all day. I really, the first thing I found was balance. I feel like I've always been someone who isn't considered America, American in America. I'm not considered Chinese in China. And it just felt like I was bits of a whole, but during this process, this entire week of the pageant, I really felt like there is a way to reconnect with virtues, to respectfully you know, embody those virtues in American society, in modern day society, by the way you treat other people, by the way you, you know, read history books and you know, try to emulate that you know, towards filial piety, towards your parents or towards your siblings, your friends, strangers. I feel like these everyday interactions are something that can be balanced. It doesn't have to be one extreme or the other. Mm -hmm. And that balance is something in my identity and also my optimism, my you know, sense of self. I feel like that's been reached by the end of the week. And obviously now you have this platform as Ms. NTD. Um, we just talked and you said you might do some traveling as well. So what do you want to do with this platform? Yeah, I really want to just connect with individuals who might be struggling with the same thing that I have, which is really trying to find and reconnect to my identity. I think if I am able to talk you know, one-on-one -on -one or meet other Chinese Americans or second-generation young women from around the world with Chinese heritage, I think you know, we'll aspire each other and you motivate each other to do better. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. A lot of what you said really resonated as, with me as somebody that grew up in the West as well. And I'm glad that now there is like little younger Chinese girls that have this kind of role model and look up to you. So thank you so much for taking this time today and congratulations again. Thank you so much. Really nice interview. Yeah, and might I add, I, I, I really understand her and I, might I add, CCP culture and traditional Chinese culture are two very separate things. And I think she, um, it's great that she found it in her that you know th that she found this new appreciation for her own culture. Yeah, and a great follow-up story would be to see how she's helping other people adopt traditional values later on. But also, it is 8 a.m. right now, so we are kicking off the second part of our broadcast. Former President Trump's campaign trail has stops in courtrooms across the country. We spoke to Trump attorney Jesse Benal about the trial's impacts on campaign fundraising. And former President Trump is throwing his support behind a candidate for House Speaker. The long-running feud between the SEC and Elon Musk continues. The agency suing the billionaire to have him testify in their Twitter takeover probe. And what's your favorite Halloween candy? We look at results from different states.
Welcome back. And now that we ask, one of my favorite Halloween candies is candy corn. Mm. Uh, good choice. Uh, although I have to say I'm more of a chocolate gal. Ah, yeah. Well, I don't eat candy corn anymore. It's sprouts for me now. Well, let's hope no children find that in their candy basket. <laughs> All right. Um, we have serious news to get to. First, uh, our top story. Former President Trump is throwing his support behind a candidate for House Speaker. He's endorsed Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. It comes after Trump said he would consider serving as Speaker for a short time after receiving endorsements from several House Republicans. Representative Troy Nels said on X he talked to Trump about the speaker's race. The congressman actually nominated Trump for speaker after McCarthy announced he wouldn't be running again. Trump says he fully supports Jordan for speaker of the House and that Congress should listen to the Republican leader. House Republicans meet next Wednesday to nominate a replacement. Other top candidates being floated include Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Majority Whip Tom Emmer and GOP Conference Chair Elise Stefanik. Trump is asking a New York judge to dismiss the hush money case over prosecutors waiting too long to bring charges. A court filing yesterday said Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg waited over six years after public reporting on issues in the indictment and close to five years after launching a grand jury investigation. Trump has dropped his $500 million lawsuit against his former lawyer Michael Cohen, a key witness in the hush money case. A Trump spokesperson says that it's a temporary pause and that it would be refiled at a later date. A statement by the spokesperson cited Trump's busy schedule as a reason due to presidential campaign trail stops and multiple indictments in courts across the country. Cohen celebrated the decision, saying the suit was nothing more than an intimidation tactic and that he and his legal team look forward to holding Trump accountable. Now let's delve into Trump's campaign finances and his legal battles. We're bringing in Jesse Benal, an attorney for Trump, to discuss this. Good morning, Jesse. It's great to have you with us. Good morning. It's always great to be here. So first, how will the $45 million that Trump's campaign brought in quarter three affect his chances against Governor DeSantis? Well, I mean, I think at this point it's, it's very clear that um, the American people are solidly behind uh, President Trump. Uh, he's the one who has all the momentum, not only in the in the primary, but in the general election as well. Um, we see that with campaign fundraising, where so much of his fundraising is coming from, you know, small donations from people all across the country. Uh, and so I, I think we really see now that the race for the Republican nomination um, was over before it began. Uh, Donald Trump is, is effectively the presumptive nominee uh, for the Republican Party, and we really need to start turning our attention to beating Joe Biden in November. You can glean some of that confidence that he has that he didn't attend the debate, of course. And then also Trump has raised a lot of money, not quite as much as Biden because he has the DNC backing. But can somebody actually win the presidency without having raised millions like Trump and Biden? Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I mean, it, here's here's really what it comes down to right now is the American people are absolutely um, they're they're tired of seeing what Joe Biden has done to America. And one of the things I think they're most upset about that we see right now is the weaponization of our government for political purposes. Um, we see that uh, with the the politicalization um, of our uh, of our justice system, of, of the FBI, um, the fact that Donald Trump has been 
uh, indicted four times now in cases where none of them have any legal basis. It's they're all, you know, very, very clearly, transparently, uh, political indictments meant to uh, keep him from winning the, the presidency. Um, that's something that has had the exact opposite effect that these career bureaucrats and, and prosecutors have wanted it to, to have. It's made it so the American people are more angry um, that our our justice system is being corrupted uh, the way that it is. And it's, it's actually making him, I think, more excited at this point to vote for Donald Trump, both in the, the primaries and in the general election. Yeah, some consider these indictments to be rallying his base. Let's talk about his documents case. Special counsel Jack's team, Smith says, Jack Smith's team says it's false to accuse them of delaying the release of all of the evidence. I mean, this is over two, like over one million documents here. If you did the math, that's about 3,500 documents a day for a year that you'd have to review. So is it reasonable for Trump to, Trump to push this back to November 2024? Um, it's more than reasonable to do that. Most of these cases take 18 to 24 months to go to trial in, in similar cases. Uh, the only reason that it's being pushed to go to trial so quickly is, again, Jack Smith's uh, belief that this will uh, help defeat Donald Trump and reelect Joe Biden uh, if it if it goes to, to trial earlier. Um, but normally you would never have a case that goes to trial this quickly. And it, you're exactly right with the amount of documents there in this case, the amount of time it's going to take to review these cases, the fact that there's so much classified discovery here um, that cannot be reviewed by lawyers in their in their offices the way that they normally review discovery, but have to uh, be reviewed in a, uh, with, you know, let's call it skip in a, a secure uh, facility. All that makes it so it's going to take more time to prepare for trial. And in this country, we care about a defendant's right to a fair trial, um, not the not the prosecution. Uh, we are, are concerned about those civil liberties. And so you cannot take um, constitutionally and just railroad somebody before they're ready to go to trial. Uh, and I, I think at the end of the day, um, uh, the case will have to be continued out at least until December. And quite frankly, it's going to have to probably be pushed out be, uh, longer than that um, just to give everybody the uh, time they need in order to uh, um, uh, prepare for, for trial. Right, all over something that some say should fall under the Presidential Records Act and not the Espionage Act. Jesse Benal, attorney for former President Trump, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Several news organizations have asked a judge if they can record and broadcast the trial of former President Donald Trump set for March 2024. Trump is facing federal charges related to his actions following the 2020 election. They argue it's crucial to ensure people have confidence in the justice system and to counter false theories. Currently, there's a rule that bans cameras in courtrooms during criminal trials, but these organizations say it violates the First Amendment. Trump attorney John Lauro has also spoken in favor of having the trial televised. In his words, so all Americans can see what's happening in our criminal justice system. Trump's legal team is trying to get the case dismissed. They say he's immune from prosecution for the alleged crimes as a former president. And attorneys for Mike Lindell are looking to drop him from their representation. They say the MyPillow CEO owes them millions in legal fees. Attorneys from the law firm Parker Daniels Kibboard, or PDK, says they have not received payment for their services during the months of July and August. Mike Lindell said in an interview on CBS that he can't afford the monthly cost of his attorneys, which amounts to $2 million. 
Lindell told CBS he lost $7 million last year after stores such as Walmart and Bed Bath & Beyond dropped his product from their shelves. Lindell vows to continue with his legal battle involving voting machine companies. And turning now to the 2024 presidential campaign, campaign staff of GOP candidate Vivek Ramaswamy said protesters rammed their car into a campaign vehicle. The incident took place in the central Iowa city of Grinnell yesterday afternoon. Ramaswamy's campaign said two protesters were upset about his remarks in opposition to aid for Ukraine. They yelled and swore at the candidate before at least one of them jumped into a vehicle, rammed into Ramaswamy's empty campaign car and sped off. The campaign said that no one was injured and that it had filed a police report, but police say no evidence supports the claim that the crash was intentional. A 22-year-old woman involved in the crash said she was not there protesting anything and had no idea whose vehicle she had hit. And over in the Middle East, the U.S. military yesterday shot down an armed Turkish drone operating near its troops in Syria. It's the first time the U.S. brought down an aircraft of NATO ally Turkey. The incident comes at a delicate moment for U.S.-Turkey relations. It's important to point out that no U.S. forces were injured during the incident. We have no indication that, uh, that, the, uh, that Turkey was intentionally targeting U.S. forces. Pentagon officials say the drone was operating near American troops. Officials say more than a dozen warnings were issued before the drone was shot down. However, officials stressed that there is no indication that Turkey, which is a NATO ally, was targeting U.S. forces. A Turkish defense official said the drone did not belong to the Turkish armed forces, but didn't say whose property it was. Turkey carried out strikes against Kurdish militants in Syria after a bomb attack in Turkey's capital last weekend. U.S. support for Kurdish forces in northern Syria has long caused tensions with Turkey. And we have news out of Ukraine. Over 50 people are dead after a rocket hit a village cafe and store in eastern Ukraine yesterday. Russia reportedly launched the missile. Ukraine's president says the attack was one of the deadliest in months. Entities cost him tells us more. Rescuers searched for survivors in the remains of what was the only cafe in Horosa, a small village in the northeastern Kharkiv region. According to preliminary information from Kyiv, the village was hit by an Iskander missile. Local officials say around 60 people, including children, were attending a wake at the cafe when the rocket hit. President Zelensky denounced the strike as a deliberate act of terrorism, which must be stopped. Zelensky was attending a summit of about 50 European leaders in Spain to drum up support from Ukraine's allies. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre called the strike horrifying and reaffirmed continued U.S. support for Ukraine. However, a lack of a speaker in the House of Representatives may hamper efforts to approve an additional $24 billion in U.S. funding to Ukraine. According to the Pentagon, only around two months of funding remain. Zelensky said at the summit that it's imperative for Ukraine to strengthen its air defenses before winter, which was echoed by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who said Germany will supply Ukraine with another Patriot missile air defense system. In anticipation of further Russian attacks on crucial infrastructure and cities across Ukraine. Earlier on Thursday, Russia targeted Ukraine's southern regions with drones. 
Ukraine's Air Force said the country's air defenses intercepted 24 out of 29 Iranian-made drones. Launched by Russia at the Odessa, Mykolaiv and Kiroborat regions. Moscow did not immediately comment on the attack on Rosa. Ukraine has launched a counteroffensive in the south and east and says it is gradually making progress. Kostem NS, NTD News. Coming up, the SEC sues Elon Musk to compel testimony in their Twitter probe, escalating a long-running feud. That story and more after the break. Bankrate releases a new survey on impulse buys made on social media. Find out how much Americans spent on the platforms over the past year. Also, candy corn, do you love it or hate it? See if it made the cut in a report on America's favorite trick-or-treat candies after the break. It's good to have you back with us. The Biden administration will resume deportation flights to Venezuela. It's the latest move to stem the flow of illegal immigrants at the southern border. Here are the details. The Biden administration announced Thursday it will resume deporting Venezuelan illegal immigrants who made up the largest single group encountered at the U.S.-Mexico border last month. This came as Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Attorney General Merrick Garland met with their counterparts in Mexico City. We have now successfully negotiated an agreement with the country of Venezuela to repatriate those Venezuelan nationals who have arrived subsequent to July 31st and do not have a basis to remain in the United States. We are a nation of immigrants and we are a nation of laws. The announcement came not long after the administration extended temporary protected status for Venezuelans who arrived in the U.S. before July 31st of this year. The officials explained that deportation is one of the strict consequences the Biden administration is pairing with the expansion of legal pathways. They noted the Biden administration remains committed to providing protection for those who qualify for asylum. The scale of this challenge demands that we redouble our efforts, that we do more to improve and modernize border security, that we do more to increase legal migration pathways and protections, more to address root causes, and more to deter irregular migration humanely. Biden officials didn't discuss details about how frequently deportation flights would be going to Venezuela or describe how Venezuela agreed to accept back their citizens. The meeting with Mexican officials covered shared security issues, among them human trafficking, arms trafficking, drug trafficking, and illegal immigration. A federal court has given the green light to a new map of congressional districts in Alabama just in time for the 2024 congressional elections. This decision is expected to benefit the Democratic Party in a state that traditionally leans heavily Republican. The court's, filing com- the court's ruling comes after it found that the old district lines may have violated the Federal Voting Rights Act. This by weakening the voting power of black citizens, who make up almost 27 percent of Alabama's population. The new map is designed to create one district where most of the population is black and another where nearly half are black. Alabama Republicans are expected to lose one House seat to Democrats under the new map. Republicans say they will contest the map, but completing any legal proceedings in time for next year's elections is unlikely. Elon Musk is being sued by the Securities and Exchange Commission in an attempt to have him testify about his purchase of Twitter. 
Court filings yesterday say the SEC subpoenaed the billionaire to appear in court last month, but that he didn't show up. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the SEC's probe. The SEC investigation escalates a long-running feud between the agency and the world's richest man. It's focused on if Musk broke federal securities laws in 2022 when he bought stock in Twitter, now renamed X. The SEC says Musk missed the deadline to publicly disclose buying the stock. Thursday's filing showed the agency subpoenaed Musk this year in May to provide testimony in San Francisco. Though Musk initially agreed to the deposition, he raised objections two days before and did not appear. The SEC says Musk accused the agency of trying to harass him and that he told them his counsel needed time to review potentially relevant material from a biography published last month. Musk also refused SEC proposals to conduct the deposition in Texas in October or November. According to the filing, Musk has given the SEC documents for their probe and provided testimony via video conference in July last year. Musk's attorney said the SEC has already taken Musk's testimony multiple times in the, quote, misguided investigation and that enough is enough. The SEC stated it needed additional testimony for information not already in its possession, relevant to what it called its legitimate and lawful investigation. Musk first disclosed he had built a large minority stake in Twitter in April 2022. The entrepreneur was late with that filing, first indicating he planned to be a passive stakeholder, meaning he did not plan to take over the company or influence management decisions. Later that month, he announced plans to buy Twitter, but then attempted to back out of the deal, alleging Twitter was not disclosing the truth about the extent of bot activity on its platform. Faced with pressure from a trial to complete the deal, Musk closed his acquisition of Twitter in October last year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram have drawn criticism in recent months for their impact on users' mental health. But a new bank rate survey reports financial pitfalls as well. NTD's Andrew Thomas spoke with one of the company's senior industry analysts to learn more. Buyer's remorse is all too familiar for many shoppers, with purchases often the result of an impulsive choice. According to a recent bank rate survey, Americans made $71 billion worth of impulse purchases on social media over the past year. I mean, especially when one member of our team noted that that's more than the GDP of certain countries like Slovenia and Ghana and Jordan. I had to go back and double check that. But wow, that's that's pretty staggering. With direct links to products, it's easier than ever to hastily hit the checkout button. Bankrate reports that nearly 40 percent of social media users made an impulse buy over the last 12 months. But setting up some boundaries could help consumers avoid regret. One of my tips actually is to unlink your payment info from websites because you need to in interject a little friction into the process, I think. Just like we talk about how paying with cash is more painful than paying with a card. Simply waiting to buy is another way to resist temptation. Nearly 60% of those surveyed said they regretted at least one of their impulse purchases. I also like sleeping on it. Maybe institute a 24-hour rule where you're going to wait a day before buying something unexpected. Rossman also suggests that consumers allocate part of their budget for discretionary spending. Survey respondents report spending an average of $750 on impulse purchases. I don't want to tell people they can't have any fun, but let's make sure that we've planned for it. And hopefully you're avoiding credit card debt. Those interest rates are at record highs, over 20%. Millennials spent the most on social media, with an average of about $1,000 worth of impulse purchases. Gen Z averaged around $840. Gen X spent about $520 on hasty buys, 
while baby boomers averaged almost $420 on spontaneous shopping. I think sometimes this instant gratification, need it now kind of culture gets us into trouble. And social media too. I mean, it is very aspirational and image friendly. And Are social media users getting the wrong message about money and personal finance? That depends on the generation. We did a different study a while back about social media and how it influences finances. And we found that 28% of Gen Zers get financial advice from social media. And that compared with only about 6% of people over the age of 40. Rossman also urges social media users to be vigilant. Some companies advertising on these platforms are just scammers. And getting duped feels even worse than buyer's remorse. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. It's that time of year again. Pumpkins are appearing on porches and Thanksgiving and Christmas decorations will soon follow. What does a crackling Yule log in New York City have in common with a house seemingly ablaze in Glens Falls, New York? Both have caused some residents to call in false alarms. A few decorations are so elaborate, they're alarming bystanders, and some have even called 911. One such caller asked on social media, what would you do? Well, if there's no smoke and there's no heat, it's probably a safe bet it's not on fire. But when these de decorations start actually putting out heat and smoke, then there's a real concern. <laughs> well. And there's a big question as Halloween approaches. What's the top candy across the country? Well, CandyStore.com has released a state-by-state -state breakdown, and this year it's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. M&M's was number two, and Hot Tamales grabbed third place. Candy corn was in the top 10 and is Utah's favorite, as I mentioned. And you know, according to the National Retail Federation, Halloween candy spending is expected to top $3 billion this year. I think I'm probably uh, contributing a big chunk of that. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> All right. $3 billion, that's a lot of money. And you know, candy corn, actually, legend has it, is originated in the 1880s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Such a historic candy. And it's. Uh, <laughs> Its name went by Chicken Feed at the time. Oh, really? Well, good name. They rebranded that. Good thing, I mean. <laughs> Smart marketing decision. Yes. All right. This is it for today. We'd love to hear from you as usual. Write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email with feedback or anything else you'd like us to know. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.